0: I'm not sure there is any occupation on the face of the earth quite as challenging as that of the war correspondent. And certainly we get a taste of what that life is like uh, from an extraordinary new memoir written by Jane Ferguson, an award-winning war correspondent. Her book is titled No Ordinary Assignment. And in this book, Jane Ferguson tells us about the harrowing experience that she has had uh, all over the world, covering war and conflict in places like Yemen and Afghanistan and Syria and Somalia and the Ukraine. And uh, it is a a story that is told with bracing, unstinting honesty. And uh, we get a sense not only of the uh, incredible difficulty of doing this kind of work and of also the importance of doing this work well. But we also are reminded again and again of uh, the deepest consequences of war, Uh, the way in which war impacts in such a brutal way, not just the specific and official combatants in that war, but also the civilians in a sense caught in the crossfire. This is part of the story that she tells so well in her memoir, as she has told it uh, in her award-winning work as as a war correspondent. Again, the book is titled No Ordinary Assignment, a Memoir, published by Mariner. Jane Ferguson, we welcome you to The Morning Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me on here.
0: I'm really honored to be speaking with you. Your book tells us some interesting and difficult things about your childhood growing up, in Northern Ireland. And I suspect that one of the reasons why you tell us about your childhood and what made it in so many ways a hard childhood is not just for the sake of kind of giving a complete chronicle of your life up to this point, but also because that surely has something to do with the kind of work that you have gone on to do and how well you have been able to do that work. Tell our listeners about growing up in Northern Ireland towards the tail end of what is sometimes known as the Troubles. Tell us what life was like, and in a sense, uh, its lasting impact upon you.
1: Sure. I mean, I do think you hit the nail on the head there in terms of like why I would include so much deeply personal detail in my book, because I... I, I, I outline at the very beginning that I want to answer in writing this book the question that I'm asked all the time which is why would you do this kind of work what 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 makes people like you go out and do this and when you really start to connect the dots backwards in your life you know it's it's personal the way we live with the way we live our lives the choices that we make as adults so much of that we can really trace back to to our origin story and where we were when we were being formed and created. And so because I wanted to write a story about a person and not just about a career, I did have to dig very deep. And going back to Northern Ireland, I I do talk about being a little girl growing up in in a very, very rural uh, Northern Ireland uh, on a small farm uh, in a family that was somewhat chaotic and in a sort of like tough environment there and not really feeling like I fit in, feeling like a little bit uh, out of place everywhere I was, having a lot of wanderlust at the wider world, you know, see, reading books and staring at atlases and just kind of absolutely uh, really taken by the idea of going out into the wider world and, and, and exploring. But at the same time, I'm growing up not only within sort of a chaotic family environment, but also a wider conflict in Northern Ireland, as you've said, called the Troubles. Now, the Troubles, of course, I'm sure many of the listeners uh, have some sort of uh, uh, understanding on the memory of Northern Ireland in the 80s and 70s, when I, sorry, the 80s and 90s when I was growing up there. The conflict had sort of started really in the 70s, this uh, armed uprising against British rule by elements of the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. And I was growing up in effectively just outside of the last Protestant village before you got to incredibly uh, wild IRA heartlands in South Armagh. So it was it was often referred to as bandit country down there. And you know, it's very hard for me to look back and not see this little girl on a farm filled with stories about how. In the hills around us were IRA insurgents. It's certainly not a word we used back then, but then I find myself as an adult throughout so much of my life um, coming to try to understand insurgents. I spent a ton of my career um, really focused on understanding and spending time with insurgencies, whether it's Hamas or the Taliban or Hezbollah or rebels in Darfur. And I, you know, whenever you sit down to write your story, you do see these connections with your childhood. You know, and and again, I write in the book that you really do think when you're a child, you tend to normalize everything. And I thought everybody drove through military checkpoints when they drove down the road, <laughs> and I thought it was perfectly normal for military helicopters to land in your dad's field. Um, so, so I was very much so. Uh, growing up around this, this sort of insurgency violence in Northern Ireland, where there were assassinations. Um, you know, write about this in the book, an assassination attempt uh, on, on a family member of mine. Um, and the, the sort of the impact that the, this conflict was having on individuals and families was playing out in front of me as a little girl as I was sort of becoming a person.
0: Hmm. And I know you also talk about... Uh sometimes being close at hand when uh, the family and or friends were, were listening to the radio and to uh, accounts from various war correspondents, and uh, probably that planted a seed as well. You tell us that uh, a post-college internship with the BBC did uh, didn't really end up leading to anything, but then your dear Aunt Fanny, someone who was a real... Uh, provided for you kind of a place of refuge and a source of encouragement in those really difficult uh, years of your childhood, gave you quite a generous check and told you to please use it for something fun. Explain to our listeners what you did with this check that you were given by your Aunt Fanny.
1: Well, it was... Uh, aunt Fanny was, you know, she was actually my great aunt's best friend. She was an honorary aunt in the family. It's very common culturally where I come from to call someone uh, 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 your Aunt Fanny. And she was someone, like you said, who I spent all my, you know, so much of my summers uh, at her house by the, by the coast. And she was an, an elderly lady who was, who had really, you know, become a mother figure to me. And she, but she had no kids of her own. She'd never married. And she uh, was basically you know, approaching a, a stage in her life where she was really keen to use uh, her money to help the people that she knew around her because you know, she, she didn't have kids to leave her wealth to. And so she, she wrote me a check. It was 3,000 pounds sterling, so about $4,500 at the time, and didn't say anything. Just put it in the mail to me straight out of college. I just finished this internship, which I hadn't managed to get a job uh, at the end of it. And she said to me, do something fun with it. And I had been dreaming of moving to the Middle East and, and, and traveling and learning Arabic and studying. And, and so that's what I did. I bought a ticket on Yemeniya Airways to, to Sana'a, the capital of Yemen. And I registered at a, at a school where there were lots of, uh, well, a few other Westerners there studying Arabic. And I, and I, and I settled into that. You know, don't forget, this was sort of the start of a financial crisis. So finding a job in journalism was so incredibly hard. All of the newspapers were hemorrhaging money; many of them were folding. Uh, the, the the broadcasters I would grown up watching, like the BBC, where I dreamed of working, were were having to lay off hundreds of staff. And so it was so hard to to, to find any way into the industry. Every door was kind of shutting. And I, I didn't. I really, really wasn't sure how I was going to make these dreams a reality. Um, the only thing I'd ever really wanted since I was a little girl, and so when Fanny sent me that money, I realized that I could at least move forward. You know, so many, so many times in my life, I haven't, I haven't known how I'm going to move beyond that one point. But all I need is this one, this one step in front of me. And so I took it and I flew to Yemen.
0: Mm. I was going to ask, why Yemen? Why studying Arabic? Was it that that was a place where you saw opportunity for yourself? Or was there something else that was drawing you to that particular part of the world?
1: When I knew that I wanted to cover major geopolitical uh, uh, stories around the world. Um, I've been drawn to those who tell stories from conflict zones. You know, these are stories that impact millions and millions of people. So, you know, 9-11 happened when I was still in high school in Northern Ireland. And so that's where so much of the news was coming from. And so I, 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 on the one hand, I knew that's where a lot of the, the war reporting was happening, but on the other hand, I'd also grown up reading, you know, books by British explorers and adventurers, and and people like Dame Freya Stark, and and I'd been I'd been fascinated by both Africa and the Middle East um, as regions, and I had taken some Arabic lessons in college, but they were in classroom settings, and you know, it's it, it very hard to learn without the immersive experience, and so a lot of when I when I did a little bit of research online, a lot of young people were studying in Beirut, Damascus, Cairo, or Yemen. And to be honest with you, at the time, I had this one check from Fanny, and it was pretty much all I had in the world. And studying in Yemen was much cheaper than studying in the other cities. And I thought, mm. if I go there, I can stay longer. And then when I looked into it, I realized how Yemen was so intoxicating and fascinating um, as a culture, much, much, much more off the beaten track for travelers, and that really, really appealed to, to me. Um, it had this; it had its own extremely unique culture.
0: Mm.
1: So, uh, so I was I was really drawn in.
0: We're speaking with Jane Ferguson, the author of No Ordinary Assignment: A Memoir. Jane Ferguson, an award-winning war correspondent, and uh, this book has just been published by Mariner. So, you you end up in Dubai and get a job as an assistant sports reporter of all things at the Gulf News. And uh, it sounds like uh, it was a a happy, (laughs) fulfilling life in some respects, and yet one which ultimately left you dissatisfied. Uh, Explain to our listeners the moment, in a sense, when the bubble burst and you realized this is not exactly where you wanted to be, or or more importantly, not what you wanted to be doing with your life.
1: Sure. I mean, I, I um, I had gotten a job, In you know, as as the financial crisis had impacted so much of the Western world, it hadn't quite reached Dubai yet and and the Middle East and and much of the East yet. And so, I got a job at a newspaper in Dubai, an English language newspaper, which was a sort of regional paper in the Middle East. And I had worked my way up, I'd been very, very fortunate. Um, to have been able to have these opportunities, I started, like you say, as a sub editor on the on the sports section. I was, you know, basically fixing spelling mistakes and making cups of coffee and working shifts. And I'd work my way up to being a business features writer, which was a great job. You know, I mean, to be 24, and I had a lovely life in Dubai. I had a, a beautiful apartment, and a and I had a sports car, and I had a and I had like a like a. a, a I could see that I had a future as a business reporter in that part of the world, and I could see that it was something that was—I that could see my life starting to to unfold in that direction, and and I write about in the book how one day I was I was at a at a car a Mazda car dealership where you know because it was part of my beat I would cover um, any kind of like you know industry trends in the region and, and in the UAE, and you know I just couldn't shake the feeling that however comfortable and lovely this life was that i that i had been blessed with it was absolutely not what that little girl on that farm in northern ireland had dreamed of you know i thought i was going to be off i'd read about correspondents who had been off in Tiananmen square when when the attacks happened by the the chinese government they were able to document that kind of history um and and really correct the record on, on what had happened I, you know, I thought that I would be in Afghanistan, you know, reporting on that country's attempts to really build uh, democratic institutions. I just, I had pictured my life so differently, and I got this sort of sense of panic. Of course, I laugh at it now because I was 24 years old. I had this impatience that time was somehow running out and i write about this how i just couldn't in that moment i'm watching these cars and interviewing japanese business executives and i just think to myself i can't i can't wait another second because i you know i didn't go to a ivy league school i didn't have a particularly prestigious i didn't mm-hmm. have family with connections i didn't know how to get from where i was to where i wanted to be But I knew that if I just waited around, it wasn't going to find me. Hmm. So I kind of had this instinct that I had to act. And I get in my car, um, and I drive to Dubai Airport, Terminal 2, which is where a lot of the regional flights go. And, you know, I I asked around for, you know, where were the the offices for the flights to, for, for the airlines that fly to Afghanistan. I booked a ticket. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just, I just knew that if I acted, if I did, again, if I could just do one thing that would push me forward, I would figure it out.
0: <laughs> well, figure it out. You ultimately did, of course, right around this time. Uh, I think it was maybe shortly after you had purchased that ticket to Afghanistan and, and made your way there, but I don't think you had maybe yet begun your work as a war correspondent in earnest. Uh, you had the opportunity to meet, Uh, someone who is something of a legend in the business, Tim Page, very well known for his outstanding work as a war photographer during the Vietnam War. And uh, he gave you advice that you seem to have taken very much to heart because really what he uh, beseeched you to do uh, has been a hallmark of your reporting ever since. Tell us about this encounter with Tim Page and what he advised you uh, to focus on uh, in the work that you were about to begin as a war correspondent.
1: Well, when when I when I got to Afghanistan, I the newspaper I was working with agreed to run some of my some of my pieces from there, and so I, you know I basically just booked vacation time, paid for my own my own my own travel, and I was scrambling around in the first couple of days trying to figure out what to what what to write. And I, in my, in my, I was such a rookie. I had no idea that it was that it was Eid, which is the end of the holy month of Ramadan. And Eid is basically like showing up on Christmas Day and expecting to be able to to work. And so, so I was struggling in the first few days. And someone who was a press officer at uh, who uh, at NATO who had been staying in the same little hotel guest house where all the all of the journalists stayed, he had kindly advised me. He said, you know. The United Nations have Tim Page, they've flown him in, and he's training Afghan photographers and really helping build a media here, a sense of, of local Afghan media. And so he would be a great interview and profile piece. And I thought, that's fantastic. So I, I headed down to the UN in, in Kabul, and I and I met with Tim Page. And as you have said, I ended up spending several hours with this man, and he— and in what was meant to be an interview just ended up becoming this unbelievable conversation of mentorship that I, I hadn't really even known that I needed and he is an extraordinary character he actually just just passed away uh, not too long ago um, and I'm, I'm, I was very sad to know that I couldn't send him this book and, and let him know what how he had been you know how it had this butterfly effect in my life and my career um, and he sat down and he. And he was just he, he was—he was very much so, almost kind of like out of central casting. You know, he—he he was dressed as a war photographer. He was smoking rolled-up cigarettes and chatting and drinking coffee, and—and and it felt like it—it it, it felt almost to to—it uh, it felt really, really like I was—I was living in a sort of Hollywood movie. <laughs> and he—he he just instead of answering to answer my questions, but largely he would go off on very long about how this work should be done, and and how we should focus on the real countries that were that we're covering the people. And I know that sounds obvious now, but you know when you're a youngster has these sort of dreams of being a war reporter, you can get kinda of caught up in this idea, the identity of it and, and the coolness of it. And take a picture of me in my flak jacket and, and, and I'll and I'll have swashbuckling combat stories to tell. But he said to me, you know you, you know, we have to put a human face on this war. And I mean, and instead of saying these are the front lines you need to get to and these are the big battles in Hellman, he said, you know, why why do we not go to insane, insane asylums and talk about the mental health crisis here? Why do we not talk about, you know, why do people have these massive weddings and, and put themselves into debt to keep up with the, the neighbours? He said, we know so little about these people and their culture and we're not... Really communicating it to the people back home, um, and uh, and he also complained that you know there wasn't enough reporting and how tough it was for the soldiers, uh, for the American and British soldiers out there, and and he the, the room just filled up with story ideas that had never occurred to me, and I was I was I was fascinated. I, I it occurred to me that this conversation I was having with him was was what real journalism was about, and I had come having this idea that I'd be in a foxhole and I would be, and I would be doing very glamorous bang-bang combat reporting. And in my career, I've done plenty of that. But he reminded me that I was there to report on a country and not a war.
0: Hmm. And how it affected the people there. Uh, so it's, it's not just reporting on, on bullets through the air and bombs going off, and, but, but the cost of that war, the impact of the war on the people there. And beyond, exactly. and beyond the combatants. and of course, you have managed to do that in so in so many different different places. Of course, you are doing this work at a time when war is waged in a very different way than it was a, a generation or two ago. Uh, wars used to be fought in a way with battle lines very clearly delineated, and we're here and the enemy is there. Just. Talk for a moment about the supreme challenge, uh, not only for those who wage war and are directly engaged in war, but you and your colleagues trying to cover war in this new era, the way that it is so often fought. It,
1: it's definitely worth pointing out the different like generation. You know, I was a little too young to be the, the, the immediate post-9-11 generation of war reporters who were going to Afghanistan and Iraq in those early days. And they were covering insurgencies and the battle against insurgencies, but with, uh, most often with military. So they'll be out on embeds with the American soldiers in, 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 the, in Afghanistan or the British soldiers in Helmand or in Iraq you know, so embedded and very often out in the fields with major militaries or with the militaries of those countries, like the Iraqi soldiers or the Afghan soldiers. Now, of course, there were always some, some reporters who were, who were managing to get deeper out into the field. But generally, broadly speaking, in TV, that's what most journalists were doing. But then my generation really came along uh, I was just I was just starting out before the Arab Spring started, and so this was a wave of revolutions across the Arab world in 2011 and 12, where um, dictatorships were being brought down by popular uprisings, and they many in many cases dictatorships held on, or the vacuum was filled with warring parties, and um, and so a lot of these initially peaceful revolutions turned into civil wars. And so I had, a, so my generation of, of reporters were actually used to spending time with the insurgents. Suddenly we're shoulder to shoulder reporting with, uh, you know, Syrian rebels, um, or, you know, heading into to Yemen and, 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 and uh, spending time with Houthi rebels. Um, and, and so across the, same in Libya for many reporters. And so that was very much so, uh, our challenge as well. On the one hand, incredible access, but on the other hand, you're with the underdogs. You know, you're not with a mighty army, and that is extraordinarily dangerous. So that was that's definitely been something that has shaped my generation of war reporter. Hmm. Uh, this idea that, that that we are very often with uh, with the insurgents, and even though. Ukraine has kind of changed a lot of that. You know, when I was in Ukraine, I was so struck by how this was the first time I had ever really covered a conventional war. Because, you know, everybody thought conventional war was over, that essentially it would always be non-conventional combats against uh, insurgencies. So it is a conventional war, but the Ukrainians from the very beginning had been so outgunned by the Russians that in some ways it had had that that feeling uh, of bands of, of, of rebels in, 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 in the front, uh, that's changing now, of course, because they, they, are, they are so centrally organized and so well-equipped by the West. Mm. But, um, but, yeah, I mean, most of us cut our teeth, you know, reporting alongside young bands of soldiers and fighters who, who were really, you know, fighting against the odds.
0: And in a sense, uh, there's something very disconcerting about being with them versus those that uh, are clearly destined to be the victors in a in a conflict. I mean, there is yeah, a certain... and I
1: write about like that in Syria, mm-hmm. you know, like what it's like to, to suddenly realize you might be on the losing side today. Right. That's very scary.
0: Yes. Uh, another hallmark of your reporting is that uh, you have not always uh, focused on uh, on On stories around specifically conflicts and war being waged. but sometimes you have been caught in 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 other kinds of stories. I'm thinking about the uh, humanitarian disaster in in Yemen, uh, essentially created by Saudi Arabia, although you you talk about America's complicity in that, but covering the way in which so many people's lives were were devastated by that, or by the Americans dramatic and abrupt withdrawal from Afghanistan covering specifically that kind of story not specifically about combat as such but in a sense mm. the ancillary costs of of conflict uh, what what was it like to to try to capture stories like that and of that dimension
1: you know the more I was on the road covering conflicts. Uh, the more I was just frustrated by the fact that so much of of the coverage focused on the the, the casualty rates of the fighting. And it was just so um, incredible to me to spend time in these communities, in these countries, whether you're in Afghanistan or Somalia or Yemen, and recognize that the war devastates a nation, you know it's not about you know 15,000 dead on the battlefield because i will know from spending time in hospitals that actually there's 300,000 dead from from malnutrition and preventable diseases because the economy collapsed and the healthcare system collapsed and you know there's so little reporting on that and, and i i over the years it became a frustration of mine that that you know casualty rates were actually to, they, they were actually much uh, what we were reporting to to the public only really was the tip of the iceberg you know when you look at people who die as a as an indirect result of the fighting it is enormous and i think that if we could communicate the real costs of war, you know, whenever healthcare systems collapse. You know, in Yemen, cholera came back. It hadn't been in the country for so many generations that doctors have never seen it before. You know, uh, in Yemen, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people starved um, and are starving today because people could no longer afford to buy food. Um, and that was as a result of the fact that the war was also being fought along economic lines. It was also mm. an economic blockade. So that just means like, you know, so it became a part of my job. And I really was passionate about doing this, showing that like, you know, I, 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 so, I told the story of one little girl whose father was a schoolteacher. The school teachers stopped getting paid, you know, over he hadn't been paid in over a year and a half. And, you know, this is a middle-class family by Yemeni standards. I met his daughter. She almost died the day I arrived in a uh, malnutrition ward in rural Yemen. And, you know, so, so children are not getting enough nutrients, which makes them more, more um, susceptible to diseases. And then when they get the diseases, the hospitals are so wildly underfunded and basically on the brink of collapse, they struggle to, to treat them. So this is a level of... of of detail and nuance that is often missed in news reporting because it takes time and, uh, you know, it takes, it, 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 it takes more than just sort of scratching the surface of casualty rates. And Absolutely. so that's something that, that I, was, I was really, really struck by. I lived in Beirut for six years. I mean, Lebanon is a country that is so haunted by the war. I mean, by the time I arrived there in 2014, I mean, the war had been over for nearly 25 years. And yet the impact on the country's ability to actually develop and provide any opportunities for young people was so, so stark. Hmm. But, um, but, yeah, I just I felt like the echoes of war throughout the years and what it does to societies and nations and, and individual families, you know, is, is so much bigger than what happens in the battlefield.
0: Right. You write at one point, uh There are so many more who suffer and die due to the unintended consequences of conflict, the collapse of economies and governments, and with these failures, the chances for any decent public health, sanitation, nutrition, or or medical care. I mean, we just don't think about those kind of consequences. I know we have uh, very little time left. I do want to ask you about the fact uh, that you are by no means the first, nor are you going to be the last woman to be a war correspondent, but you, of course, have done this work in some places in which women are are viewed a certain way that perhaps puts you at a bit of a disadvantage, or or maybe made some of the work you did even more challenging than it would otherwise be. What do you think is most important for us to understand about this facet of your experience as a war correspondent?
1: It's a complex subject when it comes to the cultures I'm reporting uh, on um, or and within, because I'm so often in an extraordinarily privileged position. You know, I get treated often as a bit of a third sex. I say this a lot, you know, it's as, as, as I'm, I'm kind of a strange creature. And myself and my other female colleagues in the field have have all sort of, have all felt this, I think, whereby, you know, we're viewed as, a sort of exception sometimes. Yes, we're women, but to, to many of the people around us, they think we're sort of dressed rather like men. Uh, we're sort of doing a man's job in the eyes of many of them, um, and, uh, and we're foreigners. And so sometimes because we're sort of these strange alien creatures, <laughs> to some people, we do get a bit of a pass. I'm always so aware that that gives me an extraordinary privilege over my female colleagues who are, who are journalists in Afghanistan. Or in Yemen, you know, or or in Somalia, that can be that can be um, that can actually can massively negate the negative impacts of it on me. Um, but uh, but there's no denying, you know, that there are certain there are certain restrictions in very very conservative societies. If you're really trying to build contacts, you're really trying to you know get into uh, to build relationships with with. With men in positions of power, then you know that that can be that can be tricky. Sometimes it helps me actually access women as well. You know, I get to I get to talk to wives. I get to hang out in beauty parlors filled with Afghan women. I get to I do get into rooms, um, and I actually wrote about this in the book. I, I get in with a with a female camera woman. Uh, we were I, I brought a, a female camera woman who was uh, uh, who was Canadian with me. On my last trip in to visit the taliban in taliban controlled areas before they took over kabul so this was january february of 2021 and um and i did that on purpose because we both put burkas on and get through the government checkpoints with our filming equipment uh, buried underneath and hidden underneath our big burkas (laughs) so you know we were able to sneak around in that way but when we were in taliban controlled areas um there were times when there was one particular moment where we were able to walk into a house um the Taliban fighters can't come in because there are women there and so it gave me the opportunity to talk to um to talk to families where I won't have these gunmen breathing down their necks while they're talking and that's that's a rare um that's a, that's sort of a rare privilege which is very helpful but i also talk about this in the book that you know People always ask me what's it like to be a woman in those cultures and, I, and I, I, you know I, I, I answer in the same way that, I, that that you and I are discussing right now, but i but I always remind them that, that a lot of the pressures on women in the industry come from back home in the industry you know when i was it's massively improved now we have a lot of female executives um, running and helping to run news organizations but when I was starting out, so many of the the, the news networks were run by men and so you know, that, that's not problematic in and of itself, but that does mean that on camera, you know, women were, were very much so viewed through that male lens. And so there's pressure. There's pressure to look a certain way, um, and, and that is, I would say, in my day-to-day working life, that had more of an impact on me than the fact that I was working in particularly conservative and patriarchal communities.
0: Interesting. So there's a couple of different ways in which that played out in complicated fashion. And of course, you also tell us about uh, what was sometimes the uh, unpleasant reality of being a freelancer, not only doing this great work, but not always for a very large paycheck or probably not even certain about where the next paycheck would would come from. So I appreciate the, the unvarnished honesty with which you share really every facet of this important work, which fortunately has ultimately led to tremendous success and honors, including an Emmy, a Peabody, and a George Polk Award, all richly deserved. Your book again, No Ordinary Assignment, a memoir published by Mariner. Jane Ferguson, thank you so much for your great work as a war correspondent and for giving the world this very important book. And thank you for being my morning show guest. I was honored to speak with you.
1: Thank you. I really enjoyed that conversation.